We are concluding our series in Ruth, uh, Ruth, a redemption story, uh, and the title for today's message is A King is Coming. This series has really been a joy to go through. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed our study and uh, hearing about this wonderful story and how it points us to Christ. We've seen the faithfulness of God to Ruth and Naomi uh, throughout this and, and the beauty of Jesus all throughout the pages. Chanel and I were married October 14th, 2006, at 5 p.m. in the presence of God and some friends and family, and maybe a couple of foes as well. Weddings are an interesting time. They're filled with anxiety and expenses, family coming in from various places, and hopefully everyone is getting along sometimes. But it's also a time of joy and celebration. It's a time to celebrate two individuals uniting in a covenant together. The journey of their lives, uh, having been separate, now are on the same path, joined together. I thought you might get a kick out of a few photos from our wedding. Now, this is 16 years ago. Oh, look how cute and small. Now, women... Please let your men get a haircut before the wedding. Um, that did not happen, and <laughs> my hair was a little bit all over the place. Um, Chanel had this fear that that if I got a haircut, they would just butcher it, and I would look like crazy. So she let me look like crazy um, instead of getting a haircut that could have actually made me look semi-decent. Also, I'm pretty sure... Uh, we'll leave it alone, but yeah, <laughs> might have been the shortest wedding of all time, just in height and stature and all that good stuff. But today we're going to look at a wedding. We're going to look at the culmination of our story, the end of our journey in the book of Ruth, and it, it culminates in this wedding, but it isn't quite the end of their story. And so let's read just the last few verses here, 13 through 22 of chapter 4, and see the end of the story of Ruth. Beginning in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning, uh, Lord, for all the things that, that you've done for us. Like Randy said, we, we have reason to be grateful this morning. Uh, even as we come to the week where we celebrate Thanksgiving, Lord, uh, let it be a reminder just of all the amazing things that you've done for us. Lord, let it be a reminder of your amazing grace for us. Let us be grateful. Let us rejoice. Father, as we conclude this series in the book of Ruth, we thank you for all the things that you've revealed to us regarding your son, Jesus. 
Father, help us to trust you completely. Help us to look to you. Help us to have eyes to see this morning what you would have us see here in the last few verses of this chapter, of this book. Let us receive gladly what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to look at two things, a wedding and a baby, and secondly, the king. The ending of our journey through the story of Ruth begins with a wedding. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now what's interesting here is after all of this buildup, we really don't get too many details on the wedding itself. It's just kind of briefly mentioned. This one verse simply tells us that Boaz took Ruth, which means they wed, and then it's repeated when it says she became his wife. This type of repetition is common in Hebrew, Hebrew writing to show emphasis. The author is emphasizing that for Ruth, the culmination of this story, of this journey, is that she and Boaz were married. Redemption has come. The very thing we've been looking for all along throughout this story has come to fruition. And we see next that God blesses them with a son. The author says the Lord gave her conception. Ruth had no children with Malon. It's likely that she was barren. Now, we're not told that explicitly, um, but it seems to be that is the case. You know, they were there for around 10 years and, uh, in Moab, and she had no children. And most authors that I was reading as far as commentaries and, and study resources seem to bring out the point that it was likely that she was barren. It seems to be a reoccurring theme in the Old Testament especially. God brings life out of barrenness. After all the suffering and the hardship that Ruth has gone through in losing her husband and moving to Bethlehem with Naomi, the labor she has put in to provide for Naomi and herself, all the adventure that surrounded the proposal to Boaz, it has all led to this amazing finale of our story. Though, as, uh, as we'll see in the next few verses, it's not really the end. It's kind of the end of what we hear from Ruth, but it's not really the end of their story. What we have seen and are seeing in this culminating moment is that God is able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Ruth, when she left behind everything that she had ever known, had no idea what God would do. Fern's just really chatty today. <laughs> Ruth had entrusted her life to, get to the God of Naomi, Yahweh. From the view that we have looking into her life as readers into this book, you know, we've got this book thousands of years later. We, we see the whole picture, you know, all the way through the end of scripture, really. Uh, we have really an amazing perspective on it. We see God's hand in this, but I think Ruth may not have seen it all the time. There's only two places in this book that, it, that the narrator directly mentions that God intervened. In chapter 1, it was the provision of food. And now here in verse 13 of chapter 4, it's the provision of a son. But we have seen his hand throughout all of this. God has not forgotten his people, and he has not forgotten his promises. This son that God has given to Boaz and Ruth was also a gift to Naomi. 
We've spoken a good deal about the idea of leveret marriage. In this provision of the law, family's line would continue even in the event of the untimely death of a man with no heir. His widow and his land would be redeemed or purchased by the brother of the man, if there was one. And if there wasn't, then the next closest kinsman had the option to redeem. And in the story of Ruth, we have seen that Elimelech and his two sons have all died, leaving three widows behind, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. Orpah had gone back to her family in Moab, whereas Ruth went with Naomi. Boaz has now redeemed both the land of Elimelech and Naomi, and he has redeemed Ruth to be his wife. This was something Boaz desired to do. I believe he loved Ruth, and he was determined to see it through. Now Boaz and Ruth are married, and an heir has been born, and their son will guarantee the name of Elimelech is not forgotten. How do we know that? Because I just said the name Elimelech. His name hasn't been forgotten. It's in the scriptures for all to see. Their son is proof that God is faithful to his promises. And the land of Elimelech remains with the family. Naomi is not left destitute. Though he is the son of Boaz and Ruth, he will be very, very special to Naomi. So let's read verses 14 through 17 and see the blessing that the women of the city give to Naomi regarding this child. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So notice how quickly the narrator's attention turns to Naomi. Ruth's culminating moment really gets one verse, and we're going to conclude this story with Naomi. The book of Ruth has not only been just the story of Ruth, it's been the story of Naomi as well. The sojourner who returned home. She had gone out full, returned empty, and is now full again. The very women who Naomi told her told to call her Mara, or bitterness, now bless her. These women have recognized the beautiful transformation brought about by the grace of God. They recognized that though Naomi felt like the hand of Yahweh was against her, In fact, the hand of Yahweh was with her. So let's unpack this blessing that they speak over her. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. They don't know how right they are. Naomi had not been left without. God had not forsaken her. He had provided for her a redeemer. The women here are actually speaking of the child whom they named. They name him Obed. Think of that. It's the women of the city here who named the child. As we see in verse 17, Obed is a shorter version of Obadiah, which means servant of Yahweh. Listen to what this blessing actually says about him. He will be a redeemer. That is, he will bless Naomi personally and will continue the family line. The women pray that Obed's name would be renowned in Israel. And as we see, again, because it's recorded here in Scripture, 
And because he will be the grandfather of David, we can certainly agree that his name is renowned in all of Israel. He will be a restorer of life. Obed will give Naomi renewed vitality and joy. He will bless Naomi in ways that she could not foresee. Where there was deep sorrow and loss, there will be joy and plenty. He will nourish Naomi in her old age, providing the basic necessities of life. Now we have seen Jesus typified in Ruth, in Boaz, and now in their son Obed. We see a beautiful picture of Jesus in this blessing. And its description of redemption. Redemption is not simply a transaction. It's the giving of life. This points us straight to Christ. He is our redeemer and the restorer of life who nourishes us by his faithfulness, his loving kindness. Jesus says in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus not only gives abundant life, Jesus is life. Some of you came out on Friday night and watched uh, the, the sight and sound presentation of Jesus. And part of the, I don't want to give any spoilers, but I'm going to give a spoiler. I mean, the book's been written for a while now, so it's not really a spoiler. They portray the scene where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And they portray this moment as well. In John eleven twenty five and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is the life and he makes all things new. When the believer is born again, the moment you believe the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus, he begins to make the believer brand new. There's an instantaneous part of that. New life. But there's also the journey that we have as believers where our life is continually restored and renewed over and over by by jesus himself through the work of the holy spirit and we have the promise that one day all things in totality will be made new in revelation 21 verse 4 and 5 he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Do you believe those words to be trustworthy and true? Jesus is the one that spoke them. If any words are trustworthy and true, it's these words. Spoken by King Jesus. And this is speaking of the culmination of our redemption. We, like Naomi, have had our sorrow turned to joy. Our emptiness has been filled. And one day we will see that in totality. When all things, all the broken things, all the, the things that are filled with decay and death are made new. No more tears. No more pain. All former things, all, all the things that have been infected with sin will be made new. Everlasting life with the one who is life. The one who defeated sin, death, and Satan. Naomi takes Obed and she places him on her lap. 
she will be to him a nanny or a guardian. And this just speaks to the incredible relationship, the special relationship that they're going to have. He is not just the legal guarantee of her redemption. He is the life of it to Naomi. He is the display of God's chesed, which means God's faithful, loving kindness, worked through Boaz and Ruth toward Naomi. Man, I can imagine the tears that are streaming down her cheeks in this moment as she's holding this son of promise. And she's thinking back to what has transpired over the course of her life. I mean, these have been an action-packed last few months in her life. She's moved from Moab to Bethlehem. She's seen Ruth um, have amazing favor with this kinsman redeemer of theirs. And now it has culminated in this moment where baby Obed is sitting on her lap. She's remembering all the wonderful acts of God. And she's listening to these words of blessing that are being spoken over her. This boy named Obed, a servant of Yahweh. And God's promises, God's faithfulness, Yahweh. The covenant faithfulness of God just washes over her. Perhaps... It would be easy to look at the story of Ruth and just merely see a love story. But after these last few weeks, I hope that you see it's so much more than that. Throughout the pages of the story, we've seen over and over again the loving kindness and faithfulness of God. And through all that has transpired, we've seen the revealing of God's sovereign plan in the life of Ruth, the life of Naomi. Jared Wilson writes, God had something extraordinarily wonderful planned for this unlikely romance. God had something plotted in his mind from eternity past stretching into eternity future. And that plot line must run straight through this old Jewish man marrying this young Moabite woman in the middle of a land fraught with violence and perversion. Perhaps you can accept all of this about the story of Ruth. You can even see Naomi's circumstances, how her bitterness has been turned around. That God orchestrated all of these circumstances in the lives of these people to bring about something wonderful that had been planned from eternity past. But what about your story? Do you see the hand of God in your story as you look back over the years of your life? You know, like Naomi, I think, We can often look at the struggles we face, whether from sin on our part or our outward circumstances, and we can find ourselves feeling bitter even at God, if we're being honest. Because we can't see beyond our situation in the moment. We can't see what he's doing or why. You and I can look at the story of Ruth as a reminder that God is faithful. That God is good and that he is true to his promises and he's true to his word. You can be reminded that he is Yahweh. He is faithful. And he's always working. Even when you can't see that he's working, he is working his redemptive purposes in your life. You can't see where it's all going. But you can rest knowing that nothing he does is without purpose. So look back over the years of your life. Do you see God's hand 
in your circumstances, even the circumstances that have been difficult, even the circumstances that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. Do you see his hand as he has orchestrated the circumstances of your life for his redemptive purposes? My story is an example of that. God has ordered the steps of my wife and I. I can give you a brief example. Five years ago, about a month ago, five years ago, Chanel, Olive, and I hopped in our Chevy Trailblazer, venturing off into what was mostly an unknown adventure. We knew where we were going, and we knew we wanted to be a part of Grace Life. But beyond that, we didn't have a clue at what was ahead of us. It was a bit like Abraham and Sarah when God called them to leave the land of their home and go to a land that God would show them. Now, I could spend days recounting all the things that God did in order to bring us here. How he took a boy from Minnesota, dropped him in Louisiana. There I met my wife and we started a family. We served at our local church. And in the middle of all that, I met this strange guy named Derek Levandusky in Niagara Falls at a youth conference. Over the years, the pieces were coming together, though it was very slow. And we didn't know what it actually was at times. In some ways, it felt like putting a puzzle together, but in reverse, you know, not not in reverse, but like upside down, like the back of the puzzle. So we couldn't see the picture, but we knew that sometimes pieces fit together. Eventually, we made the decision to move up here, and I'm skipping over seven years of ups and downs, trials, struggles, and extreme loss. God only knows how many things had to be arranged. And when we departed Baton Rouge, I hit play on the road trip playlist. I love a good playlist uh, put together, that I had put together on my iPhone. I know, you know, this is before I think I'd ever even really paid attention to Spotify. Um, you know, I, I like to curate my playlist. I don't want to have an algorithm do it for me. Um, they just get it wrong. The first song that came on was a song by Matt Redman entitled Never Once. And as we drove away, leaving behind my mom and dad, who are probably listening to this right now, um, you know, watching them in the, as they kind of get smaller and smaller in the rearview mirror, these were the words that we heard. And I'll try to get through this with a dry eye. Standing on this mountaintop, looking just how far we've come, knowing that for every step you were with us. Kneeling on this battleground, seeing just how much you've done, knowing every victory was your power in us. Scars and struggles on the way. But with joy our hearts can say, yes, our hearts can say, never once did we ever walk alone. Never once did you leave us on our own. You are faithful. God, you are faithful. Can you look back over your life and see what God has done, even to bring you to this moment in your life? The billions and billions of things that God had to orchestrate to bring you to right now. 
Nothing that has happened was outside of his plan. And you were never alone in any of it. God has been faithful to you time and time again because that's who he is. Consider what he did to bring you to himself the moment you were born again. What led to that moment? Consider how many things had to occur to bring all of us together into this church family. There are people represented here from all over the place, not just Livingston County. We even have some strange folk from California. (laughs) I don't know if they're any stranger than the Louisianans. God is faithful. My life is just one story, and it's not done yet, Lord willing. I'll have more years of stories of God's faithfulness. Lord willing, you'll have more years of stories of God's faithfulness. God works through all of our ups and downs. He works through all our victories and our defeats, through our struggles in all moments. One of the ways that God uses our journey, as we see in the book of Ruth, is that he uses all of these ups and downs, all of these struggles, to deepen our fellowship with God. To deepen our communion with Christ. He uses the good moments, not just the sufferings, as well. Even journeying to a foreign land such as Western New York. (laughs) Chanel and I have tasted a deeper communion and joy with the Lord. God is faithful. The story of Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, and now Obed doesn't end with this special moment shared with Obed sitting upon the lap of Grandma Naomi. It closes, in a peculiar way, with a genealogy of all things. Now, it seems that most of us really, really enjoyed reading the genealogies. I, I think that's most, most of us, we start there with our yearly reading. We start with all the genealogies because of how much we enjoy them. <laughs> the story of Ruth is not just the story of her redemption or the sto- story of Naomi's redemption. Really, it's a chapter in the ultimate story of redemption. It's the story of Jesus. Ruth ends by showing us that a king was coming. And so today we're going to look at the king. When I was sitting, when I was getting the preaching schedule ready, um, and I decided on looking at the book of Ruth, I had not considered the implications for how this book would end and the time of year that we would be in when we ended this series. Next week, we'll begin our Advent series, the hymns of Advent. Advent is the time to not simply extend the celebration of Christmas, but it's a time of reflective preparation, both in remembering the first coming of Christ and eager expectation for his second coming. See, the word Advent means coming. Ruth brings us perfectly, providentially, into the season of Advent. Ruth prepares us for a time of reflection, a time when we look back at the first coming of our king and look forward to his second coming. Ultimately, the story of Ruth proves to be the light at the end of a very long and very dark tunnel. Going back to the beginning of the redemption story, man had been ruined by sin. And in Genesis 3, there is the first promise of this light. Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put enmity... 
He's actually speaking to the serpent here. Between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There would be one who would come and defeat Satan. He was promised to Abraham as part of his line. He was promised to David to be part of his line. And now we see at the end of the book of Ruth a faint glimmer of that promised light in the words of this genealogy. See, the genealogies are actually important. Verses 18 through 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon or Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The inclusion of this genealogy shows us a couple things. First, this genealogy is included to show us that the seemingly mundane and random events of life are not just one thing after another. Life seemingly going nowhere. Ruth reminds us that life is moving toward the worship of Jesus Christ. Specifically, that the events in the life of Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, and the others, were not going nowhere. There was a special providential plan greater than anyone could have ever guessed. The narrator, as we've mentioned, has written this in such a way that we take notice of all the things that seem like they could be considered happenstance. Of course, none of it just happened. This unlikely romance between Ruth and Boaz produces a lineage that leads us to King David, and David's lineage makes a beeline towards the son of David, the truer David, the king of kings, Jesus Christ. God's care for Abraham's family The nation of Israel and the line of David was all to bring about the birth of the truer and better king, King Jesus. And second, the genealogy listed here and the one given in Matthew 1 show us something about what Jesus, the king, was coming to do. And so we're going to read another genealogy. Matthew 1, 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now I want to apologize before we really get into this. I'm going to butcher some of these names. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of the king, of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, 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 the father of 
Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, obviously, in Matthew 1, we see a ton of names. Each one of these names were people included in the line of Christ. Each one had a story. Some with lives that perhaps felt very mundane. They just lived their lives. Some were kings who did great things. And some were kings who did terrible things. But all were part of God's plan. Something we should take note of here in Matthew's genealogy is that he includes several women. This wasn't normal in Jewish culture to include women in tracing one's line. Only the men were were listed in normal culture. The inclusion of the women in this list helps us to see a little bit more about what Jesus came to do. These were women with a past, women with a stigma, women with questions hanging over them, and men of blatant sin right alongside some of them. Tamar, who seduced her father-in-law, Rahab, a prostitute, and Ruth, a Moabite. Bathsheba is listed simply as the wife of Uriah, highlighting David's sin as an adulterer and a murderer. In this genealogy, there are outsiders, prostitutes, adulterers, and murderers. Simply put, what this tells us is that Jesus came to save sinners. This is the backdrop, if you will, for Advent. This is the backdrop for Christmas. That there is no sin too great that he cannot save. There is no life too broken that he cannot redeem. God redeems and works his purposes out through sinners. There is no sinner, no victim, no failure, no wrecked life, no outsider or outcast that God cannot reach and rescue and redeem. And he will restore life. God can redeem anyone. Jesus is Greek for Joshua or Yeshua, meaning God saves. And his name matches the angel's description in Matthew one twenty one. He will save his people from their sins. This is what Jesus came to do. During Advent, as we focus on the birth of Jesus, and yes, it's good to do so. It's good. You have liberty to celebrate his birth in the way that you see fit. But Jesus didn't just come to live. He came to save sinners. And in order to do so, Jesus had to die. He had to shed his precious blood as a sacrifice for our sin. We celebrate his first night because of his last night. He had to live a perfect life. He had to take our shame and our sin upon himself. He had to bear the wrath of God that we rightly deserved. And he took it on our behalf. He did this and declared the work to be finished, to be done. And so this story of Ruth that we've been going through, this this story of redemption, has led us straight to Jesus. 
This story also leaves us in expectation of the return of the king when Jesus will come again and make all things new. And so Ruth has led us right into Advent. This morning, in closing, we'll partake of the Lord's table, communion, together. Let's read from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we've concluded this series in Ruth, and we've seen the story of redemption so clearly, we now enter into the season of Advent where we celebrate the coming of Jesus for the first time. We also find ourselves anticipating eagerly his return, his second coming, his second Advent, when he'll return for his bride. And just as the end of Ruth's story began with a wedding, the beginning of our eternal life begins with a wedding as well. We'll celebrate that wedding with an incredible feast will taste fully of the new life that he has promised us. So this table, this simple meal symbolizing the body and blood of Jesus shows his death and resurrection until he comes. And then we'll have a massive celebration, a massive feast, and he will eat with us. In one of the gospel accounts, Jesus says, I will not eat or drink of this meal until I come back, until I return. He's, he's waiting for this feast. And we'll join him at that feast. And I imagine we'll look back over the years of the faithfulness of God. And we'll recount testimonies to each other, to those around the table of how God was faithful in saving us. And there won't be any sorrow. There won't be any sadness. There won't be any mourning. There will just be celebration. I imagine maybe Moses will stand up and start telling of all the amazing things that he saw God doing. And then maybe somebody else down the line, somebody we don't know, I don't know, will stand up as well and share the stories that God has, of all the things God has done in their lives. And we have all eternity to hear of the goodness of God over and over. Because God is faithful. Nate and the team will lead us in song. Um, You can make your way to either table. There's one in the back, one in the front. There are gluten-free crackers as well. If that serves you, uh, grab the elements and return to your seat. And uh, we'll partake as we sing together. The Lord's table is for believers. Um, So if you're not a believer, don't feel the need to participate in this. This is not a do-as-the-Romans-do type of situation. You don't have to just do this because others are doing it. And you don't want to feel like the odd person out. But if you've believed the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are welcome to come to the table and participate. This is for you, believers. And in taking communion, we say together that we believe that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
for the death and resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for the story of Ruth that reminds us of your faithfulness, of your loving kindness, of your chesed. Lord, we even thank you this morning that we can look at the the genealogies listed in Scripture and see that they are also telling us a story of your faithfulness as you've moved through the lives of sometimes very ordinary people. All to write your story of redemption. You've preserved your word for us so that we can see your goodness, we can see your love, we can see that Jesus bore all the wrath that was reserved for us. He took it in our place. The cross was costly. Redemption was costly. But Jesus was willing and able. He desired to do so. He extends to us the same love that you, the Father, and your Son and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed from all eternity past. And we're invited into that love. And we've tasted and seen how good it is. And we thank you for that. We praise you, Father. We give you honor and glory. We worship you today, Father. And we eagerly await the return of our King, King Jesus. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.